Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Is that good? Yes, sir! I know who I am! Did IQ just drop shot? I could have been. I have a plan. I like this All shit. It is a boss, Will. It is a dance off, bro. It is your Me and destiny. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Let the games begin. And welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. And today we are going to be discussing Christopher Nolan's latest film, Dunkirk. The very much, it's not divisive right now in terms of critics, but on film Twitter it is very much. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> everything's divisive on film Twitter, so who cares? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. But today's show is going to be a, uh, a very special one because we're going to have a, a very special guest coming on a little bit later. We're going to get through this section. We're actually going to be dividing today's show into three sections in the spirit of Dunkirk, where we're going to have just our little introduction with Lee and I. Then after that, we're going to have special guests, Adam Woodward from Little White Lives Magazine, who's going to come talk with us, give an initial review of Dunkirk. And then after that, we're going to, uh, Lee and I, go into our regular Atlantic SC deep dive into the film. But before we get to all that, I want to see how my co-host Lee is doing. How you doing, sir? Uh, wonderful. Uh, it's actually, uh, it's my last week of work. So I am, uh, ditching, ditching that whole career progress coop to live the land of the poor and, uh, and creative. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what can you do? But uh, I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm very excited. You I'm, can work. You know, well, that's true. <laughs> I am going to be working, just not for money. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, um. Oh, but yeah, no, I'm absolutely, uh, I'm so excited about this. This is kind of one of those, um, I, I kind of make a uh, little moment, like little checkpoints in my, in my life where I kind of try to think of ideas or, or, or recount stories to my potential or inevitable children or child. Uh, and I think of like the cool things, the cool anecdotal film things I'll be able to say I was there for, or I made something of. You know, and, and up till now, there was this kind of cool moment where I was like, uh, when I worked in the cinema two years ago, I, I thought to myself, hmm, you know, inevitable son or inevitable daughter. I was working in the cinema when Avengers Age of Ultron came out. And I was in my head at the time, I was like, because that's going to be like Empire Strikes Back. You know, it's going to be like one of those things like you had to be there. Obviously, that didn't pan out. <laughs> and I had to strike that off the... the Fucking hell. I can't believe everything careless. that you're saying. It's terrible. <laughs> Age of Ultron, comparing it to Empire Strikes Back. Not, and you actually it. thinking that your kids are going to give a shit and not to listen my, to you? That was my I fault. have kids. <laughs> <laughs> that was, there was there was the error in my ways. A, my kids aren't going to give a shit. And B, Age not going to care. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking of Age of Ultron. I, I figured they'll be important to kids in the future, but like it's it's never going to be like a star wars kind of thing no yeah it, it doesn't matter I, I, but at, at the same time i still like to make little checkpoints now for myself saying oh look what i did you know i'll be around when the next paul thomas anderson film comes out and i was reviewing on my podcast with jason at the time when dunkirk by christopher nolan came out and that's going to be like a cool little checkpoint you know i'm going to be able to look back and go that's when my career was at its highest unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> same as mine yeah, uh, so, before so. i end up in jail that's <laughs> <laughs> sorry that's our unfortunate tax scam it's gonna catch up with us someday <laughs> <laughs> i'm not part of that but i know there's murder involved well that's what you think uh, but your name's on the fucking papers 
<laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's that's really good. I like to see those papers and sign something. <laughs> Just don't do it Facebook style, like gradually taking shit away from me. <laughs> oh yes, of course. Uh, yeah, but otherwise, I'm fine. How's yourself, Jason? I'm I'm doing super well. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm super excited to talk about Dunkirk. Obviously, I, I'm even more excited to have Adam. Uh, on the show today from Little White Lies Magazine. It's a magazine that I, I've been collecting for quite some time. Uh, this is a long time coming, actually. I reached out to him in February to see if he would like to come it's in in July and talk with us. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's actually kind of a miracle it's actually panning out because it, it just it just seemed like such a fucking uh, moonshot at the time. <laughs> now it's actually like that day has come like fucking five months later. It just seemed like it was not ever going to happen. Exactly. Uh, other than that, I, I had a really great time uh, this past weekend. We went to uh, my my girlfriend's grandmother was celebrating her uh, 75th uh, birthday, but also her 50th wedding anniversary. Cool. Her entire family was there, like uh, her grandmother's sisters and, and uh, brothers. And so we ended up being around like 50 or 60 people just celebrating uh, her grandma. Cool. And it turned into a really, really fun time. Uh, you know, uh, people were like so much food and drinking and we had this outside. So we had these giant fucking campfires and everything like that. Jeez. I brought the kids along. I had cigars. Everything was super cool. And I got a bunch of reading done as well. And obviously I've been tallying up on the hashtag now watching with Jason yeah, yeah. Uh, on Facebook. Uh, that, and have so, we ever uh, mentioned that on the show? Have we ever said that, that you're actually doing that? I have no idea. Yeah, well, we I've... can tell them now. Yeah. If you're one of the, the lucky few that um, follow Jason on Facebook, he's got a little running tally of the films he's watching because I, he keeps forgetting to fucking keep count each time we go to talk about films, what he's actually seen. And it's great. I've, I've been following it. It's actually great to see how much more shit you watch than I do. <laughs> and you know what? That The funny thing is, is that I had never realized how much shit I watch. Mm. That's insane. I mean, I was looking through it and I was like, you know what? I actually do watch, you know, not necessarily a movie every night, but I do sit down something. and actually watch something. Yeah. And you're probably um, still not listing all the things you see each week. Yeah. I don't know. I'd have to. Uh, yeah, you're right. I forgot to label two of them. Today. <laughs> uh, but um, I do have to spend more time at work. Fuck you. I do have to spend more time doing my work stuff. And that's one of the things that I want to do right now is really you know, be a little bit more organized. So that's why I think that maybe the movie watching will go a little bit down. However, I mean, if I do do that much more work, then possibly my weekends will be a little bit freer and therefore I'll probably get something in there. It's true. Yeah. And there's, there's probably a balance to strike there at some point. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I'm looking forward. I haven't been able to go see uh, War of the Planet of the Apes yet. I'm planning on seeing it. Uh, most likely by the time this is out, I'll probably have caught it most likely on Wednesday or Thursday. It's good. I want to check that out. Yeah, no, I know. I was talking to David Hart the other day and he really, really enjoyed it as well. So I'm looking forward to looking at that i was supposed to go um uh, with the kids and my girlfriend but after the weekend that just came up we were all just exhausted but on sunday the girls were like you know dad maybe we can we go to the pool instead i'd like to go swimming you know just spend those a, selfish a day bastards not wanting to spend two hours well, of their lives surrounded by the misery adventures of sad apes <laughs> <laughs> but they did spend an hour and 45 minutes around the misery of sad people when Man. i took them to see dunkirk on saturday <laughs> So that was kind of cool. Oh my god! Yeah, so, <laughs> so I've seen Dunkirk twice now. I saw it once on Saturday. I saw it again last night. I gotta be honest. I'm probably going to head out to see it again. 
cool. Why yeah. not? You, you only get to see these things for a short window of time in cinemas. Let's do the whole Twitter film debate about whether Nolan makes his films elitist or not. That'll be fun, right? Oh, uh, yeah, but I don't know. I don't, don't answer it. I was kidding. We're definitely not approaching that. Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody should care, more importantly. But people should call me elitist then because you I... You are elitist. I... I, I'm calling you, you elitist. So, <laughs> fine, I am elitist. But I mean, for Dunkirk, even now, like I, I um, I'm gonna buy the uh, making of uh, book, the hardcover book. I got it. It's sixty bucks. It's gonna be well spent. They didn't have it here in Quebec City, so I called my parents over in Fredericton and told them they have it at Chapters. Go over there. They have four copies. Choose the best one, and they did. So that's gonna be awesome. Great. I also bought the soundtrack. And uh, that's amazing too. But anyhow, so that's it for me, I guess, right now. So shall we move on? Shall we get Adam on and come talk with us a little bit? Let's do it. Let's greet the man. All right, cool. So what I'm going to do right now is play the regular promo and the trailer for Dunkirk. And we'll be back with Adam Woodward from Little White Lies magazine. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm the host of The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers, and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of All This Mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to AB filmreview.com for episodes or following on Twitter or Facebook at The Last New Wave. What has happened is a colossal military disaster. We shall go on to the end. We shall never surrender. We have to go to Dunkirk. Ready on the stern line. What are you doing? You know where we're going. Into war, George. I'll be useful, sir. One of ours. He's on me. I'm on him. The ship's about to leave. They need to send more ships. Every hour the enemy pushes closer. They've activated the civilian boats. Civilians? We need destroyers. Where are we going? Dunkirk! I'm not going back. If we go, they will die. You're weekend sailors, not the bloody navy. Should be at home. There's no hiding from this, son. We have a job to do. Turn it around. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall never surrender. We shall never surrender. We shall never surrender. Hey, Sheila. Where's the bloody air force? 
I hope you enjoyed the trailer for Dunkirk, a film directed by Christopher Nolan and stars Finn Whitehead, Aaron Barnard, Barry Keegan, Tom Glynn Carney, Jack Loden, Killian Murphy, Mark Rylance, Kenneth Branagh, and Tom Hardy. But before we get to the initial review of the film, I want to welcome uh, from my favorite film magazine and also the best film, <laughs> film magazine out there. So you guys get yourselves a copy. From Little White Lies in London, Adam Woodward, thank you so much for accepting to be here. How are you, sir? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for uh, having me on. Right, it's going to be great. So tell us a little bit about Little White Lies, you know, what you do there. Essentially, what I want you to do is advertise your wonderful magazine on my yeah. show. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I could do a better job than you've just done for us, uh, but I'll give it a go. Um, so I'm the digital editor at Little White Lies, uh, and I've been here, believe it or not, about eight years now. Um, wow. And the magazine itself started in 2005, so going all the way back to The Life Aquatic, which is our first issue. Um, and I think it, it kind of started as a response to what I guess we thought at the time was like a lack of interesting film coverage. I mean, in the UK, I don't know what it's like maybe so much in the US, but in the UK you have Science Sound and you have Empire, and there's a kind of big gap there in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, we, so we wanted <laughs> right, to do something which yeah, kind right. of spoke to film as the way, uh, you know, in the way that we consumed it and enjoyed it and spoke about it. Um, so I guess that's where the magazine really started uh, initially, and it's since grown into, I guess, a pretty global film brand now. Um, and the website, which I kind of look after, is the is a major part of that. And we've also recently launched a film podcast, uh, which I think we're on about. Um, Yep. 14 or 15 episodes in now um and yeah it's it's been a, a pretty amazing journey and hopefully you know we're, we're just on the uh, still at the start of it that's great yeah the podcast you guys should, uh, should check it out it's called truth and movies a little white lies podcast and uh tell us a little bit about the podcast you guys you've been doing it for like you said about 14 episodes now you started i think it was with guardians of the galaxy if i'm not mistaken uh volume two and that's it. You've got uh, David Jenkins on there, who's the editor-in-chief over at Little White Lies. But you also have a host uh, in James Richardson, a uh, guy that I found out about on YouTube, uh, who's been reviewing movies uh, for quite some time now. Yeah, so uh, it's me and David who are currently the uh, the only two full-time staffers at Little White Lies, believe it or not. Um, I think one of the cool things about the podcast uh, from from our point of view is that we we try and like bring in some of the amazingly talented contributors and different voices and perspectives that kind of make up the Little White Lies family because it's so much more than just like me and David. Um, and I think James now has almost right. become a part of that. He, he comes from a, a different background. He's known primarily in the UK as a, a broadcaster um, and his, his background, I guess, is more sport or soccer. And uh, he's, he's a, a big film fan and got in touch via a production company called Seven Digital who are kind enough to... Uh, to produce the show for us each week. Um, and yeah, I guess it's just, uh, it's something we've, we've wanted to do for a long time, a podcast. Um, and I guess because of the fact we are a small team and, you know, being an independent magazine and publication as well, it's like difficult in terms of resources to uh, find the, the time and, and everything to, to pour energy and, and everything that's required to, to put something together. So yeah, it really was a case of just waiting for the right opportunity to come around. And uh, we've been very lucky, I think, with uh, getting James on board and just the the way it's been received so far. That's yeah, it's, 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 it's one of those weird things that was worth waiting for because it, it sounds so professional. You've even got a man, it's like the host has like one of those like, 
uh, verified BBC voices. You know, like you know, it, it sounds almost like he had a background in in Blue Peter. So it's it's <laughs> it's really it's 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 um, terrifyingly professional. <laughs> I think that that was like one of the key things when we uh, initially set out uh, with the idea of doing a podcast was that we wanted it to be something that we would listen to and something that kind of reflected the quality of the brand, I suppose, as well. Um, And yeah, James definitely brings that. He's so uh, professional and he's just got that uh, broadcasting experience, I guess. So, But even you guys, as you work on the magazine, the reason why I, I collect the magazine, I, like I was talking just off off, uh, off air right now, is I uh, I started re- buying the magazine at issue 44 for the master because I'm a huge Paul Thomas Anderson fan. And I noticed that you guys had incorporated some uh, 3D aesthetic to it as well. And I thought, Jesus, this is genius. I, I've never seen a magazine put so much effort, you know, it, down to the the, the choice of paper that you guys use the artists that you guys hire to um to uh you know create everything that has to do inside the magazine itself and the articles are very very well written too there's always that moment now like you guys are on issue 70 now i have like that whole back catalog i have there are certain copies that i own two and three copies of because i know that i'm going to tear through one but at least i'll have one on the side where i can keep as a collector's item the stuff and what i like most about the magazine is when i get it i get to open it and it's the smell the smell of the magazine (laughs) is just fucking awesome every time i sit down i'm like this is it i can smell little white lies and it's great so yeah, I mean, I, what what it came up with the concept of you guys as magazine when you? I love the fact that you said yeah, you found that in between Empire Magazine and the other one that you mentioned. I don't, I forgot. There is something missing, and I think that what pleases me a lot, you know, based on like what uh, Lee and I do in terms of like deep dives, deep takes on, on films. Little White Lies magazine is somewhat that as well. Whenever I read a review, you can feel how authentic it is. Uh, you know, everyone writes mm. well. I love your work. David is, is a really funny guy as well when he decides to really slap the shit out of a, out of a movie he didn't like. It's always a pleasant read anyway. <laughs> and so, yeah, I can't, I can't vouch for this more. Like I said, this is my favorite movie magazine. Uh, anything coming up that you want to announce uh, before we move on to, to Dunkirk and your experience with the film? Uh, no, I mean, if we could bottle that scent, I think that would probably be the next the next thing on our uh, agenda. But sadly, not. Uh, <laughs> although it is it is a, it is quite a thrilling experience still when we get the mag back from the printers after you know everyone's worked on it for kind of two months and um, that that first kind of unboxing experience. Uh, in fact, I don't know why we're not already doing this on YouTube. But yeah, that seeing everyone opening the magazine and smelling it like. People's noses buried into the pages is like, I still get a kick out of that, which is great. Definitely. Cool. All right. So shall we get into our our review of uh, Dunkirk? Sure. Yeah. All right. Excellent. So Adam, uh, Lee, read your review. I haven't. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with the film? If you liked it, did you not? Uh, You guys prepared quite an issue on Dunkirk. And I believe that you were talking about uh, a piece that you'd written on the historical background. Take us... A little bit through that please yeah so i mean dunkirk is a film that i've been personally anticipating i guess since it was announced but more so uh in the early part of this year i think going back to april when we'd confirmed that we were going to do an issue around the film and um warner brothers put on like an early kind of long lead press day uh which riffing off the film's uh air land and sea theme Mm-hmm. They they had the boat, which if you see in the film, Mark Rylance has this uh, old wooden pleasure yacht, which they use to uh, ferry soldiers off the beach onto the uh, destroyers. 
they actually had that boat uh, down uh, in London on the Thames. So we, we went down, kind of got a bit of a tour of the boat, and uh, they had a historical consultant there who kind of talked us through some of the, um, I guess, the backstory of, of why those boats would have been used, you know, how they were used in the film also. Uh, and then from there, which was the kind of fun part of the day, I guess, we, we went on to um, get a helicopter uh, from London down to Dunkirk. Sweet God. Oh, nice. Which was great. I mean, I'd, I'd never been in, in, in a helicopter before, and it was, it, it, it was actually quite a kind of plush helicopter. So uh, really? it, I did, you didn't need, like, a headphone, like, cans or anything. It was, it was uh, <laughs> kind of noise. Can- I imagine it was being, like, being in the back of a limo or something like that. Mm. It was quite plush. Anyway, the, the journey was amazing. It, took, it takes, like, 45 minutes uh, from London down over the channel. Um, and we, we got kind of spat off on the beach, and then – um by this point this is months after the production had wrapped up so there was nothing there really of the film but you you really got a sense of like the scale of the beach itself i mean it's just miles miles long i mean mm. you have the mole uh, on on where we were on the left um and then to your right it just kind of stretches on seemingly forever wow. um and it was kind of amazing standing there thinking like what would it be like being on this beach with four hundred thousand men uh you know over four or five days in this chaotic situation and i think although Ultimately, the film does a really interesting thing with that idea. I'm not sure it replicated that initial like thought or feeling that I had of what would it be like mm. to be immersed in that situation. I think, you know, maybe it's interests in terms of, you know, the narrative it's putting across elsewhere. But that was maybe the thing that the film lacked for me the most or, or that I felt most let down by was that that's, I didn't get that sense of scale of that beach. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Do you think maybe the, uh, you know, the, the promo day out maybe uh, oversold the experience a little and that uh, you were expect you now got an actual 3D sense of how long and wide and crazy scary the scale could be for this and, and then you see the film and you kind of have to fit it all into frames and you kind of had the, and the attention's divided into two other stories you kind of feel like maybe it should have been a, a, a more focused effort. I know I think that's exactly right and actually my, my only previous or prior um, I guess knowledge of Dunkirk uh, in film had been the scene in Atonement which is amazing like one right, take yeah. five minute shot and you really get in that moment you really get a sense of uh, the, the the scale I guess of what it was like being on the beach you have James McAvoy's character um, walking around and he's seeing not just men in desperate situations but he's seeing men in really kind of board situation as well just waiting <laughs> to be rescued um and there's people who are making the best out of the situation i think there's one moment where he's walking past a brass band that has, that have just struck up and you know people are playing cards and they're they're chatting so maybe yeah that obviously doesn't fit into christopher nolan's vision he's a big kind of high spectacle director uh but yeah i was mm-hmm. expecting there to be a little bit more nuance and a little bit more uh texture i guess from from a kind of human point of view Uh, i can understand that Uh, i didn't i did get the sense of scale only at the end when um uh farrier tom hardy's character is flying over you know when the engine's given out and you can actually see the lineups uh over the people he seems to be going on forever especially from an aerial shot you're like just imagine walking that distance it must be really really a hard distance to cover on foot and you know, I, I just saw it more as a smaller story, you know, as opposed to having this bigger scale. I understand that Nolan wanted to um, 
possibly show not necessarily how big it was, but to kind of have this microcosm through these three intersecting plot lines or narratives, I should say, as opposed to really showing the size of what this was. You know what I mean? It's like the small beginning to a large end, if you will. That was the way that I kind of took it. I understand like your experience of seeing the beach from that perspective. I possibly would have gotten the same reaction as you. However, I mean, to show that distance between those lines, you kind of have to scale out and maybe scale a little bit smaller to show just how many of those lines there actually were. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think my experience, as I say, was totally colored by uh, that press trip because there's no way I could have possibly come away from that and and felt any differently, I guess, in terms of what my expectation was for the film. And right. i got to say, I wasn't necessarily like disappointed by the film for what it is. And, and one of my big pet peeves is when people bemoan films or review films for what they're not. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> but 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 at the same time, I do I do think there was maybe a, a slight missed opportunity there in terms of uh, conveying like the full sense, just for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the the story and and the history of what happened. Yeah, I, I actually I totally get that. One thing for me that that was a real um, issue with Matt because I actually think that the film is. I mean, it's Christopher Nolan. He's he's just really fucking good at what he does. You know, he's he's great at telling these very grand, very spectacle-driven stories. And this focus on experience, uh, it makes sense in a lot of ways why he picked Dunkirk for the story. I think he was trying to tell this very allegorical story about the sort of greater parts of the human nature. But uh, the I think I kind of agree with Adam in that the it's not so much to me the scale of the actual physical location so more as the scale of the of the historical event is 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 much too big for for Nolan to make something that can appease everyone and i think also very very much when it comes to like these kind of historical films especially when they're given the big covers all title like dunkirk you're going to i'm not saying that the expectation you you you're you're right or wrong to go into the film and expect this to be the definitive Dunkirk film but pretty much from this point onwards you're going to see this film taught in schools for kids uh, who who need to learn something about the, what it was like to be there on the day but the other side of that is that Nolan he touches on uh, sometimes commentary about about the film in that he he looks at that how the the French were sort of treated at the time or he looks at you know how, how the British had higher uh, lower expectations than what they got away with uh, and that t- and one scenario with regards to um, the Bolton character they actually almost absolve the British of any sort of wrongdoing by his staying behind, even though that's a composite character that's not based on any real... The people that he is based on weren't that character or didn't make that act. There's a lot of commentary that Nolan's making about how the actual historical event played out that doesn't give you really close to the full picture of the historical the difficulties of the time and how the French were totally abandoned. And, and, and in interviews, Nolan did say that he what he thought was that the, the French should look at it as a, as a moment of pride uh, because they, they were there, they helped the, the British escape and the, the French then saw see Dunkirk as the turning point where they became under Nazi control. And so... They look at it as a great moment of shame where Nolan suggested that they should really look at pride because they helped so many survive and they sacrificed themselves to do so. And that's that's a perfectly fine viewpoint to give on. But the film 
doesn't go into that. Uh, the film does touch on some of the difficulties between the British soldiers and the French, but doesn't actually talk about much of the sacrifice the French gave or much of the consequences of the French defeat there. And that's, I mean, if you're seeing that from just the, the British perspective, it's it's really not that much different than the old propaganda they used at the time, you know, to, to talk about the great Dunkirk spirit. These kids that are going to be in school learning that they're looking at Dunkirk, they're only getting half the story, and I wouldn't think twice about it, really, if, say, there was none of the real exposition about how the British were handling it, and it was more focused directly on the experience of being with the soldiers, or much more in line with Nolan's vision, it didn't actually really have to be at Dunkirk. The actual story he wanted to tell about the great parts of the human consciousness, they don't specifically have to be in Dunkirk. They just, a lot of the dots connect there. Those kids are going to see Dunkirk and see a film that tells them one thing, but doesn't tell them all the things. And I feel like that sense, that scale being too big for Nolan to bottle up, it was detrimental to me because I was looking at these bits and pieces and going, he really, I don't know if we can, if we can just walk away from this, you know? No, I think that's a really interesting point. And when I was on that press day, which I mentioned earlier, um, the producer, Emma Thomas, who is also uh, Christopher Nolan's wife, mm -hmm. she mm -hmm. mentioned that they had, uh, with some friends, gone to Dunkirk years before, say 20 years ago, I think it was, in the mid-90s. Um, and they had gone on one of their friends' boats over there. And, and it was that right. moment which kind of gave him the idea. And mm -hmm. I wonder really what his experience was at that time and, and, and how that seed kind of grew into the idea that became the film of Dunkirk and um, the, the historical, factual elements of it are, are intriguing because although I don't think as a filmmaker he's got any kind of moral obligation to tell a certain story, I think no, your, sure. your, your point about, you know, a lot of the action that he ultimately wants to depict, you could kind of position that in any war film, I think, really. Um, yeah, and he exactly. Does, he, he does perpetuate a few, a few myths as well. I've read some interesting stuff uh, before and after seeing the film about the, the small ships and the idea that, you know, this has kind of been distorted over time, this idea that all these uh, boats were with civilians basically uh, captaining them were going over and ferrying people off. And there's a few shots in this film where Kenneth Branagh's uh, naval officer or commander is, is kind of looking out over the mole and, you know, sees there's one, one moment where he kind of looks and sees uh, what seems to be an entire fleet of these small ships coming over. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. It, it's a lovely shot to have in mm -hmm. a movie, but it didn't happen like that. I mean, if you read pretty much every historical account that's worth reading, um, it, that, is, that is not a, a kind of sight you would have seen. Um, and you know, I'm I'm all for people taking artistic license. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. I do want I do wonder what he was kind of trying to say or or do there, or the effect he was trying to achieve with that. Well, yeah, I mean, like as far as I see it, that sort of the grandeur of the the human experience and these sort of great moments of bravery and valor, they do tell a bigger story. That's Nolan's Nolan's bit is is his love affair with the allegorical. Uh, so it it kind of that takes precedence over the events and most of the time that's okay i mean like there's no he's never done a real life film before so there's no reason why it should ever be have been a problem but in this case it definitely it's maybe just a bit too much for him to to, to chew really there's there's too much to summarize or to neglect and while it doesn't change the fact that this is a sort of a really tightly told story the context that that story is told in unfortunately means that sometimes we have to be sort of we have to put a little asterisk on the side of our recommendations for Dunkirk to say 
Yes, it's it's a great film. It does a lot of great things. Asterix, lots of it isn't real, you know? Yeah, but I mean, like Adam was pointing out here, you know, and even you were saying as well, the fact that you have to leave a couple of things out, you know, it's all a matter of perspective when it comes down to it. And I think that the story of Dunkirk, I don't think that Nolan was, I understand that by calling it Dunkirk as opposed to the British version of Dunkirk, uh, you're, you're setting yourself up to a certain extent to possibly offend certain people, like you pointed out, Lee, with the French and all that. But I don't think that Nolan, it was his responsibility to actually make the French version of that. Oh, no. And even no, like when not. you see it at the beginning of the film, uh, just when they're walking through the town, just before Finn actually is the only one that makes it out alive and crosses those sandbags, you know, he the, the, the Frenchman literally says to him, all right, Bon voyage anglais, where he's basically saying, have a good trip, Englishman, where we have to sit back. And you can see that there's a lot of, how can I put it, uh, resentment in the Frenchman's uh, face. He's not really happy to have to do this. And so there is some sort of acknowledgement from Nolan. That's that's what I mean. That That's the actual problem, though. That commentary on the French, that's what makes you have to question the, the bigger story. Otherwise, we could ignore it. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't feel like we have to say it anything about it because he's telling a very 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 specific story in dunkirk but you also have you also have gibson's story where he is literally abandoned by uh, alex in the ship when he's sinking at one point right the fact that there's no one there to help the french i mean so there is some sort of guilt uh that that that's goes throughout dunkirk you know with regards to the french i understand that maybe in addressing it he is calling attention to it but at the same time there is some sort of acknowledgement and saying okay we can't really right the wrongs that we've done but we are aware of them and we we are glad yeah. for your sacrifice so, i mean I mean, here it's a little give and take for me where I'm I'm kind of going to be siding with Nolan, obviously, because uh, I figure that he did the best he could with what he had. And obviously, I understand that maybe choosing something historical might have been a, a, a tad touchy to make a film that's more in line with about, with tension, you know, and suspense and in, in, in ward-like how can I put it in warlike uh, events? It'll be interesting to see. I, I haven't read anything about it opening up in France to negative reviews or anything. Yeah, I, there's been a, there has been quite a quite a bit of commentary from. Yeah, the French okay, cool. Because I haven't read biased. any of that. And and what did you say? Is it quite mixed? Uh, yeah, I think they're pretty uh, surprised how little they feature in it. Okay, okay. As far as the most that I've read so far, they are pretty surprised. One thing I, I think he does. Uh, do with the um, subplot on the boat with Mark Rylance and Barry Keehan's character in particular, there's an interesting thing there with like the, the casualties of war, not just being the soldiers that we see dying in, in you know, burning planes and, um, you know, getting attacked with bullets in the street. Um, this is, this is a guy, this is a kid basically who, um, is is kind of treated like a hero in the local paper, even though what he actually contributes is very little to the to the war effort. And I think yeah, yeah there's also a point that, that Killian Murphy's character to kind of stray into spoiler territory, ultimately, you know, gets away with what would be regarded in any other context as being manslaughter. Right. And uh, that, 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 that for me is like an interesting acknowledgement from Nolan of like, you know, th there are other stories and subplots happening here that we maybe aren't always privy to and history definitely glosses over this stuff. So I don't know, I feel like he, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Lee, before about, you know, there's, there's, there's an element of like obligation to 
historical accuracy, but at the same time, I think he does address that in other, maybe more subtle ways. True, absolutely. It's also interesting to note that like, you don't really see that many uh, British war movies in this, in this kind of vein anymore. Um, and, mm. you know, it's very difficult, I think, in this day and age to make a big kind of blockbuster, big dramatic film like this about war from a British perspective and not fall into the trap of, you know, <laughs> jingoism or patriotism and just kind it's of true. like that whole Dunkirk spirit thing, which we talked about earlier. And I think he does, he's, he's clearly very conscious of that. I'm glad that you pointed it out because that was one of the things that I noticed that he avoided the, like the pitfall, uh, the pitfalls of the hero of war archetype, you know, that most other films that usually have, you know, the soldiers don't see themselves as anything special, you know, and that's echoed by Alex, mm. uh, the Harry Styles character at the end of the film, who says that all he did was survive, you know, and the blind man answers that that's enough. Where, you know, you kind of have to go through this adventure with these guys. And, you know, I, I, I have to commend him for that because most of the time you'll have like over characterization in films uh, like Saving Private Ryan, which is a, a good film. Uh, I'm not going to take anything away from it. But you do have that these soldiers sitting around talking way too much about what the fuck mm. they're going to do when they get home. But I mean, Nolan yeah. skips all over that because I mean, these these guys don't want to talk. I mean, if I was in the situation like that, <laughs> I don't I don't think that I'd want to do that. You know, the first thing I'm going to sit around and just start talking about can't wait to see my dog skip when I get home from the war. They're focused <laughs> on survival for the entirety yeah. of that thing and i mean i think that that's what dunkirk is you know it's it's essentially a survival film from beginning to end so sure um that I, i've actually seen the film twice now and the the second viewing i went to the only other uh cinema in london which was screening it on 70 mil imax which is the science museum right uh, and as you leave the theater you go through the aviation exhibition and right over your head there is a kind of spitfire <laughs> Oh, my, God. my fucking nice. I live in the shittiest fucking place to review films, man. <laughs> but, but I mean, just from like to give a British perspective on it, although I think the film isn't necessarily overly patriotic or political even, um, mm -hmm. weirdly, the kind of second time around, especially coming out and kind of seeing that amazing aircraft just there. Um, yeah, it did give me this weird sense of not necessarily pride, but like appreciating the sacrifice that had been made and oh, just absolutely. like what what it must have meant to be in that situation, um, not just surviving, but fighting as well. I think, yes, it's a survival story, but like Tom Hardy isn't just surviving in that movie. He is he is like fighting hard. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, I mean, if there were a, a point in the World War Two where you want to give into a survival slash hero heroism story, eh, Dunkirk's the place to, to put that story. So. You could see kind of like even logistically why Nolan picked the battle. It's just, it, it, it seems ripe for just giving off the sort of best parts of what makes, sol what soldiers do the craziest, hardest shit you could possibly imagine. Uh, so I, absolutely, it's, and it really gets that across. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a horror film. It's, it's almost, it's nonstop, just tension, dread. And and you're just you're sitting there jittering about the entire time, and how you didn't walk out and then see a Spitfire above you and not dive left or right is a pretty telling, incredible uh, feat of courage on your own part. <laughs> oh no, they they were on our side, remember? So oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, especially now that they're 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 obsolete and you can identify them from the sky at any time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. So uh, yeah, we we got a we got a couple of tweets in. We asked what people might if they had any questions about the film or any takes that they wanted to have read out on the show. And I've got a, a little selection here, and so we're going to talk about uh, them and maybe discuss uh, some of the ideas that were thrown around. Uh, so one came from our uh, our friend Neil Ramsey under his um, his banner Film Seekers at Film Seekers on Twitter, and he says, "Does Christopher Nolan have a fear of intimacy with his audience? Why are his films, aside from a slice of Interstellar?" emotionally cold uh so i thought well maybe uh adam what what do you think about that what 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 bit is in interstellar is emotionally warm yeah that, the, i would say the relationship, the, the relationship. yeah uh, oh no yeah I, let's move on from interstellar very quickly but uh oh adam <laughs> Going to have I know. To fight. I, 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 I'm inclined to agree a little bit. I, I kind of felt the same with Dunkirk. It left me not like cold emotionally. I think that's maybe stressing it too much, but mm. I definitely felt the same or a similar kind of detachment as I felt with a lot of his films. And you know, ultimately, maybe that's just not his strong suit, and you kind of have to just accept that. And you know, maybe we're we're expecting too much from him in that department. And he he gives you so much in terms of like. Uh, spectacle and technical achievement and accomplishment and yeah maybe we're just being greedy but I can kind of see <laughs> I can kind of see I don't really have like a counter to that because that that actually uh, is is in line with a lot of my thoughts on his film so oh cool you're you are allowed to agree <laughs> Jason well I disagree with yeah, you I thought you were. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I've never felt any cold attachment from any of the, the characters in any of his films. I mean, um, possibly in Memento, where I, I don't particularly feel anything for Leonard Shelby. But after that, I mean, in Insomnia, I can understand a little bit of how, you know, um, Al Pacino's character and even Robin Williams' character are, are dealing with those the emotions that they have to go through in order to kind of solve this this murder mystery they're even going through their own little things um mm. i mean even in um in uh, inception with Cobb, i felt that you know the loss of his wife was really something that was traumatic for him um and even here in dunkirk i mean the absence of characterization actually brought me closer to them because i wanted to uh, not necessarily understand them better as individuals but understand what they were living mm. you know i thought mm. that that brought me a little bit closer and interstellar obviously being a father myself that relationship that cooper has with murph is is very very warm it's very uh you know that's why the main theme love is something that a lot of people have criticized but i'm I've championed i i love interstellar for that so i have never really understood where that coldness come from i mean whenever we look at films like by stanley kubrick I can understand why that's cold. It seems very methodical. It seems like everything's done by a surgeon, you know? And even if we can go into uh, the, the films of David Fincher, I mean, there is a coldness to the, how uh, Fincher is, is going to approach specific scenes, you know, just even in the color palette, for Christ's sake. At one point, you just, you just go get a blanket when you're watching the social <laughs> network, even the girl with the dragon tattoo and even uh, the game. Mm. But uh, for Nolan, I don't know. I, I think it, it really probably has to do with personality. Um, you know, how, how you watch films. And I think that Nolan, for me personally, will actually make films that I'm going to be more inclined to uh, sympathize with those characters and therefore probably feel a lot more, uh, you know, warm towards what those people are actually going through. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm kind of half and half on it myself. I Like, I get it. I kind of, I do agree uh, with the coldness sort of element. And I'll, I'll try to explain why a little. I mean, I think it's mostly because... 
of that allegorical nature with which he tells story, that kind of grand way he makes films. I won't. I will admit it during Dunkirk myself. Although I would say maybe Dunkirk for the the majority of it, you're supposed to feel this sort of blank nothing, uh, other than kind of tense terror. You're supposed to also feel like how bleak and in vain most of the action is. Uh, so I mean, I kind of get that. It wasn't edging on sympathy or anything really, uh, for much of the film. But, uh, like, does it work for all of its films? I don't know. Not really. I'd say the fact that Inception is such a, on the face of it, such a personal film, and yet still aims for, like, grand conceptual action for maybe two-thirds of the film, I feel that kind of detracts. Uh, and I feel like maybe, you know, Cobbs's pain in that film. It's it's maybe, it's distant maybe because it's, you'll relate to it on a sort of anecdotal nature. You know, you'll feel it because you might look at yourself in that place and then you'll you'll kind of get it but i think for the most part you're you're not actually invited to connect with these characters on a on a real personal level because we don't spend a lot of time with them not acting outside the overall arc of the story and that i think that gives the sensation of feeling detached from them being real people while at the same time you know Conversely, there, he is trying to tell a story about you know the elements that make people. So uh, it's it's interesting. I I think that I like I like I really like Interstellar because it's like kind of middle ground. I feel like there's um there's a lot of connection there because we get to spend so much time with the characters just doing nothing and building a relationship. So I feel there's there's a difference there, and I think he intended that for the most part that. I would, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm 50-50 on it. Sometimes I think it makes sense for the film. I think in Dunkirk it makes sense. Uh, I think in, in Batman, the Batman films, uh, they, they make a lot of sense to be as cold as they are. Whereas Inception, I, I, I'm a bit more divided. I think maybe it should have been a little warmer because it is such a, there is a, such an element of this real relationship that we're supposed to feel for, where, where we're really not connecting with it on, on, on the same level that the character is. Uh, it, it just depends. I, I, I kind of get it. I don't know if it's as universal as as uh, we might generally accept it, but I, I don't know. I get it. <laughs> I think I think that Nolan is is obviously a very clever director, and sometimes he just tries a little bit too hard to like show you how clever he is. So like the end of <laughs> the end the end of Inception, for example, like that should be a really cathartic emotional moment, right? This guy is is uh reconnecting with his kids um and you don't actually kind of see that he, he leaves it on this amazing uh, kind of like now iconic final shot which uh you know is kind of asking a different question almost is like challenging on a different level um and for me he the way he does that kind of blocks any emotional engagement you have with that character's um with his journey i suppose and, and the, yeah the arc that's got you to this point. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with that. I can agree to that too. However, I don't think that's cold though. I I, I think he's basically like most of people are being spoon fed now in cinema. And I think that Nolan is, is essentially saying, how about you make up your own damn mind as to how this is supposed to play out? I mean, he's giving you food for thought as opposed to an answer. And I think that that usually is the sign of a good teacher in my opinion, he's not going to have all the answers. Do you not read that as cold, though? When somebody says, figure it out for yourself? <laughs> Do you not read no, that as, I, I, that's a I bit of a cold move? I see it as an opportunity to better yourself as an individual. And I'm not saying that's what Nolan is trying to do, is basically say, be better, motherfuckers. I have no idea I think that that's what his intention is. But to me, <laughs> if, if, if you're going to see a movie, and a movie of the caliber of something like Inception, 
you know, or even the prestige, you have to kind of come into it and expect to be fooled a little bit. I mean, I mean, films used to, they all started as illusions. If you go back all the way to Méliès, he used to use them as magic tricks, essentially. There were no answers. There were these things that you would go to and you could ask questions about them. So to me, not having a definite answer is basically saying, how about, you know, let's talk. It's creating a dialogue with the audience. And I think that sure. my, this is my impression anyway, is that audience have gotten lazy. They're like, no, feed me. <laughs> And I don't like that. I don't like the fact that people are there sitting there going like, feed me. No, you felt yourself popcorn. And on the way out, how about you think about it a little bit? I, I like that. That, that. That's totally valid. And, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily use the word cold myself in describing his films. I think I, I, I like use the word detachment maybe earlier on. But um, yeah, okay. I, yeah. I, I, that's that's my kind of my line on it, I guess. And I'd, I'm totally with you. It speaks to a much wider trend, I think. Um, something a lot more insidious with with the way kind of audiences are spoon fed now, especially in like mainstream blockbusters. And it is ultimately credit to Nolan that he's able to mount these, uh, you know, ridiculously high, ambitious, high concept, uh, grandly scaled and and budgeted films uh, that that do have this kind of ambiguity to them as well. Yeah, we we, we probably do expect too much. <laughs> There's that. I mean, but let me posit this as well. I, I, have you guys noticed a shift? And how uh, he closes his films now, you know, they're a little bit less ambiguous. And I, I remember reading a piece uh, in Little White Lies magazine. I don't remember who the writer was. And it was how uh, The Dark Knight Rises uh, foreshadowed the dawn of Trump. Mm. It was a wonderful article where you just pick it apart and you're like, ah, isn't that fun that Nolan has been somewhat prophetic? I mean, Memento could be a commentary on a post 9-11 world as well, if you want to break it down. And I think that right now, Nolan, after Inception, has slowly started to move away from being this ambiguous director where he's actually kind of giving you not necessarily solutions, but saying there is hope at the end of the tunnel. I mean, The Dark Knight Rises, uh, Lee and I were talking at one point, and I think it, you know, I don't consider the Batman films part of Nolan's filmography. I think that those are ones that he's done to be able to feed the family, feed Warner, and then after that, he's actually gone out and done the films that he wants to do. Mm -hmm. And... I noticed that with The Dark Knight Rises, the film isn't about Batman. It's actually about the citizens and their motivation to want to reclaim their city, you know, as opposed to the being like kind of oppressed by this this terrorist in a sense. And even in Interstellar, there isn't necessarily that ambiguity. There is some closure because, you know, Cooper does meet Murph in the end uh, after she exits, uh, you know, she comes out of cryosleep and all that. But there is that ambiguity. Is Cooper going to make it over to see uh, Brand? But do we really need that answer? No, because Brand is actually going to survive. We can see it. She's actually set up the colony and all that's been great. And even in Dunkirk, I mean, even if we're stuck, we understand that, you know, there is a, 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 they've gotten through this potential barrier. There is a solution. We know the outcome of history that the Nazis were defeated. But do we really need to be pushed that far away? I mean, if we look at all the other films that he's done, I think that he's slowly started closing that door on detachment or coldness that people are talking about. And it all started with The Dark Knight Rises. That, that's my feeling for it anyway. Well, I'll, I'll well, I'll move on to a uh, to a, another tweet we've got here. So this one comes from a uh, from Darmur. He's at Kavulu Bits, uh, and he, he he's actually a writer for Big Picture Reviews. And he says, "Is it as meandering and pretentious as all Nolan films? 
And is Harry Styles the new breakout star? <laughs> Thoughts, well, Adam? <laughs> no, I think Harry Styles is, is very good in this actually, and uh, he is. Yeah, you know, it's it's arguable that any any kind of young or upcoming British actor could have played that role, but. You know, he's given uh, maybe more dialogue and more to do than, than we'd expected. And yeah, I think he does well with, with his his kind of brief uh, spell on, on screen. And I mean, Fionn Whitehead is also terrific in, in the kind of more, more lead role, I suppose. And Oh, yeah. In, in almost dialogue-free performance as well. And the camera lingers a little bit more on his face. And I feel like he's the, he's the character you connect with the most. Um, Absolutely. Quite, quite intentionally from Nolan's point of view as well. I have Finn Whitehead is I want to see him in more movies. I thought he was great in the film. Harry Styles, I don't think he's particularly a scene stealer. I liked I like Barry Keegan uh, quite a bit as well. I mean that thick accent that he has, there is a certain vulnerability to him as well, but there's also that show of strength. So I mean to be able to pull that off at such a young age, I thought he was great. And maybe maybe to me I probably wouldn't have gone with Harry Styles because he's kind of distracting from all the other talent that's there these young guys that are going to have their their these basically are their breakout roles in Dunkirk I'd never seen them before but at the same time I mean I wish people were paying more attention to those guys mm. instead of one direction guy well they they they, they got to lure in the the teen audience somehow I mean I I get it oh, yeah. <laughs> he's he's lure. Even... a million and one little girls who were never going to watch uh Dunkirk are now watching Dunkirk Harry Styles isn't the worst actor in the world and everybody else is really good I think yeah, yeah. Benefits. Yeah, uh, fair enough. The, do do we feel that um that his films are on the whole pretentious? I was just going to say something on the meandering comment. Hmm. Uh, I just in relation to I guess the uh the split narrative timeframes that he uh, uses in this film. Um, as I said, watching it a second time, I wasn't sure initially like how much rewatch value there would be, especially. Uh, less than a week after seeing it for a first time but sure. second second time around the way he cuts up the scenes especially in that um cognitive moment where everything kind of comes together uh out at sea um the way he cuts up the scenes really adds to the tension when you know what's coming next the way he cuts just before something is about to happen um, i think it's actually quite quite ingenious especially just maybe more from like an editing point of view as well um, something that maybe I, I haven't actually read a lot of analysis of that, but um, although there is there is clearly something, yeah, something to say about how effective I guess the uh, overlapping time frame devices that he uses. I think just on a kind of scene by scene structural uh, level, what he does is quite quite different from what you normally see in a linear uh, blockbuster of this scale, and it's quite invigorating to watch actually. Yeah, definitely. Cool. I, I totally agree. The um, the split in three story and the way that culminates in that middle. I, I absolutely, I, I never had a problem with it. A lot of critics at the time were saying that, you know, it kind of ruined the mood or distracted them or something. I, I didn't find it. All, I It just reminded me of just how a, how a film is, is normally cut, really. Or at least like maybe if you think of TV shows where we're in one scene of a set of characters and we're in another scene of a set of cars, characters, it wasn't something that struck me as totally you know fresh and new but it was definitely something that i think it, it worked on gaining the perspective of how the story should be told from the, the the certain elements that played into this one you know week or day or hour i didn't find it very confusing at all i, I suppose but i don't know I, I guess people are generally more put out by it so i guess that's that's how they feel <laughs> i was pleasantly surprised because you know, straightforward stories aren't necessarily Nolan's cup of tea. 
And this one, I think, is his most straightforward. I mean, those narratives that come together, you know, uh, that, t- that converge at one point, they are linear within themselves, you know? So I, mm-hmm. I just thought that they just had different starting points, essentially, in the way that they're cut together. They just converge when they need to converge the way that it would have done, been done in, in a war. It's just that we're getting all these perspectives at the same time. And I think this was actually the best way to tell this story. I would agree. Uh, yeah, so uh, Joshua Outred, who is at Jay Outred, said, I loved how the score acted as a sound effect at times, but was emotionally yeah. haunting when it needed to be. So he was quite uh, in favor of the soundtrack. So I was wondering maybe what's what's the general consensus in, in this little tight group? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of all over the place, the soundtrack. I, I guess the, the person who's tweeted in there is referring to this incessant like tick-tocking which uh, underscores the whole film mm, um that right. that certainly keeps the the kind of pulse and the beat and the tension going in the film but yeah I, i'm not sure this is like hans Zimmer's best nolan score uh i don't think it kind of matches that like uh, emphatic grandeur of uh, interstellar um mm. Oh, wow, yeah. It, it, it's, it's still good. There, it still has its moments. But yeah, there's some, there's some kind of, especially watching it a second time around, there's some bits I noticed that it, it kind of does feel quite jarring, actually. It's, it's quite industrial and quite like, it's quite heavy. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I, to me, that kind of set the scene. I guess it's, the difference is that most of the other soundtracks you can kind of take separately from the film and they build this sort of, this world for you. This is, it feels very much in the film at the moment so you kind of have to be watching it at the same time and it's got this just this overbearing sense of dread and tension and every everything has an element that almost plays more to the elements of a soundscape than it would to the elements of a soundtrack and we were talking uh last episode about kinesis in there you go i'm glad you brought it up in the movies when we were talking about baby driver and how the soundtrack plays a lot into that and uh, to me, this was a kind of another great example of how the sound, sound elements can play into the, just the drawing effect where you feel yourself moved into a film or experiencing a film just because you share a beat and a rhythm with a film. This was Hans Zimmer manipulating you to fall in line with that beat. Even when they're, I think one of the standout moments for me was when they're, they're carrying the body uh, off the beach trying to get onto, the, to, onto their first ship. They've got this tempo that starts out quite slow, but it's this, it's this jarring, frantic string piece and just keeps building and building. What you're seeing on screen isn't actually that tense. There's a lot of crowded people bumping off each other, but it's not it's not absolutely the most like thrill ride experience you could ever imagine seeing on screen. But the the fact that it's underscored by this this constant rising string piece, you feel that what matters here is that the characters on screen are doing the best they can despite the slow movement and a lot of the the dialogue that the characters aren't using is is absolutely used by Simmer, who fills in the void on their behalf. And so, to me, I, I totally love the soundtrack and what it meant to the film. Am I going to go out and buy it? No, it's it's not like a listenable piece of work. It is, as you said, Adam, very industrial, and I, I think it's very purposeful. When I think of World War II, I think industrial. So uh, <laughs> that, to me, that 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 makes a lot of sense. Um, it's not going to be something that I'm going to go, oh, yeah, I'm just going to put that on and chill out for a couple, half an hour listening to the, the Dunkirk soundtrack. But I think in the film, it does a stellar job of, of setting the scene and speaking on behalf of the film for what Nolan is trying to get across. Well, I bought the soundtrack. Because <laughs> you're a madman. 
and uh, I was in the car driving the other day, uh, and um, I, I don't normally like being tense behind the wheel. And for some reason, I was just driving along, and I was like, what the fuck? Why am I feeling so goddamn nervous right now? And it's just because the goddamn soundtrack was playing in the background, and I had to turn it <laughs> off because I was just driving with my shoulders up around my ears, just going like, why is this so creepy? What the hell is going on? That being said, I think it was really great. And I mean, like you guys said, it really highlights or under- underscores the score um, or even the the, 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 the the Foley effects that are in the film. Just that first gunshot that we hear. I mean, I don't know if you guys jumped, but I did. And I jumped yeah. right out of my seat. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you can hear that there's a rhythm that's set by those those uh, subsequent gunshots as well. And then that's when the, the, the score kicks in. And I thought that was wonderful. Uh, that being said, am I going to listen to the score while I'm driving again? No, <laughs> I won't. But I, I might actually want to sit down here at home and kind of just pick it apart piece by piece to see where those, those specific things are, are playing throughout the, the film. Cool. Uh, yep. Well, that brings uh, sort of an end to our, our Twitter discussion. We did have another, we had another one from uh, uh, J.D. Duran from In Session Film. He sort of chimed in again on uh, on, on the soundtrack and uh, it was it was great, but we kind of covered the same ground. So thanks, J.D. Sorry, we, we kind of stole your thunder there. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, we're good to go. Awesome. So uh, Adam, thank you so much uh, for coming on. We're going to bring you on for a, a full discussion next time yeah, weird theory we're trying to find a film that really wants to go down deep dive and bring you on with that i'm looking forward to having you again i'd love to talk to james as well and david eventually they're pretty cool as well but just having you on this you know i'm a big fan of the magazine so how about you tell people where we can find you online where we can find little white lies magazine as well as the podcast oh yeah well yeah thank you so much for having me on maybe we could do a, a four or five way conversation next time with the other guys but uh Jeez. yeah awesome that'd be awesome <laughs> terrifying <laughs> yeah in the meantime you can find uh little white lies just at lwlies.com uh, there's the magazine, obviously, and uh, Truth and Movies is the name of the podcast if you want to search for that. Um, and yeah, just I thought I'd finally give a little shout out to uh, a really interesting, if you like Christopher Nolan and you like uh, his films and you want to find out a bit more, um, there's a really good video essay which has been uh, done by a guy called Luis Azevedo, uh, who's also known as Beyond the Frame. Oh, I watched this. It's it's great. It's a, a quick quick breakdown of the of the, the the perpetual nature of time in Nolan's work. Is that the one? Exactly. Yeah. So that that's kind of up on the um, Little Lies Facebook page at the moment as well, and it's it's really uh, fascinating uh, insight I think into his films and uh, a, a sort of a recurring thematic device that he uses yeah absolutely and where can we find you on twitter sir oh i'm on twitter i am yeah i don't tweet a lot i must say but um i am on there so uh my handle is a w lies excellent so thanks again adam and to everyone who's listening right now please uh, do yourselves a favor go like the facebook page for little white lies give adam a follow also you can follow david jenkins you can follow uh james richardson and little white lies obviously on twitter Go ahead and subscribe to the Little White Lies podcast. It's really fun. The most mm-hmm. of the time, what they do is it's going to be knocking it out under an hour, which is makes us envious because we just can't do that. <laughs> we are yeah, the uh, antithesis of our show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they take down three movies at a time most of the time. You Sweet guys are going to yeah three movies at a time, which is really really cool. So thank you again, Adam, so much for coming on the show. Absolutely, I, thank I can't you. Fanboy enough. We're going to talk to you soon. I'll be tweeting this out, and uh, this is great.
<laughs> cool. Thank, thanks so much, guys. And uh, yeah, take care and we'll speak soon. All right. Thank you, sir. We'll be back with the rest of the Atlantic SC podcast where we're going to break down and go for our regular deep dive on Christopher Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, Stay tuned. welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Hi, I'm David Hart, host of Pop Culture Case Study, a podcast that analyzes film from a psychological angle. On Thursdays, we take a look at an older movie, pick a theme, and then apply the research that has been in the psychological field to it. Then on Monday, we tie all of that to a new release. Lastly, there's a section of the show called Fangirl Fixation, dedicated to my wife Britt's ongoing film education. We discuss older films that she's recently seen, as well as the upcoming releases for that week. You can find Pop Culture Case Study on your podcast player of choice, and I will be there, as always, diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. Kirk. I'm not going back. There's no hiding from this sun. We have a job to do. If we go there, we'll die. see it from here. What? Home. Welcome back. Uh, we want to thank again Adam Woodward from Little White Lies yep. for uh, coming on and talking with uh, Dunkirk with us. It was really, really cool of him. I hope you guys enjoyed it. It was really, really fun to, to sit down and talk, especially when he was talking about that uh, the trip that he took, the helicopter trip. That was fascinating. Absolutely. I mean, how, does, how doesn't that sort of set expectations for the film? That's that's very interesting on, on, on the part of the production company that they would so readily put you somewhere so close to what really happened and then bring you to a fictional narrative afterwards. They must have had a lot of faith in how Christo Christopher Nolan was going to bring this to the screen. I found that really interesting. Yeah, definitely. And like I said, you guys, I'm a big fan of the magazine. Uh, so go ahead, give give Adam a, a Woodward a, a follow on Twitter. Also, David Jenkins, James Richardson, and uh, Little White Lies together. Like I said, fantastic magazine. Uh, but now it's time for our deep dive into the film. Um, yep. So it's time for us to disappoint Darren uh, because this is the pretentious part of the show where we decided to 
to uh, to be uh, uh, meandering and, and pretentious with our takes on on Dunkirk. Absolutely, it doesn't matter the film, big nor small. They're all pretentious to us. There you go. <laughs> Uh, but before we get into our respective takes, oh, general feelings on the film, general thoughts, Lee. How did how did you like Dunkirk, man? I mean, I guess in that middle that sort of section with Adam, I did talk a lot. It seemed maybe a little negative in that I talked a lot about the the, the shortcomings of the film in my perspective. But right. my my genuine takeaway is is that this was a like an incredible film that I do appreciate quite a lot of, and I would say aside from its setting. I don't really have really any particular issues with the film, you know. I, I think it's a very particular story. Uh, Nolan, again, giving us these great allegorical tales about the human condition. And uh, it's something that, I, you know, is always going to appeal to me and, and my general love affair with philosophy and stuff like that. I think he, we kind of share that. And uh, I've Dunkirk once again. It goes. It it does a, an excellent job of of making these very human stories out of very dire and terrible scenarios. And <laughs> he's really good at managing that. So, uh, I, I, really, my my ifs and buts only come from certain detractions here and there over the overall uh, piece. But when it comes to what is really being said in the film, I, I don't really have much negative to say at all which makes a lot of sense i mean i understand like the reservations that you had and even adam brought up something interesting uh you know and he was talking about in terms of uh, well, i don't want to you know put words in his mouth but that that sensationalist uh, aspect of it with seeing all the boats on the horizon mm. and having that true cathartic moment where there's an actual rescue yeah happening you know i mean as a regular audience goer that's exactly what i want to see uh, I understand, however, that in terms of his history, it's probably not as accurate. But I mean, if I were to just kind of take a step back and look at it in terms of film and how film usually has to kind of bend the rules of what's acceptable and what a true story actually is, you're going to have to make some concession. You're going to have to do something for the audience. Uh, and in this case, I think that it was important for that shot to be there, even though if it's not there in real life, that it is there in spirit. And I mean, you got to look at it. The shot that Nolan does put in the film, they look like ghost ships a little bit. Nothing is really <laughs> in focus. It could be technically a hallucination, something that 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 Bolton wants to happen mm -hmm. that, it, you know, there's a questionable way. I mean, you don't necessarily see them all coming in at the same time, like a, a row of a hundred boats. That's you know, true. Like yeah, absolutely. A, it is very much our extension of what imagery is being used that's filling in the blanks, but not a lot is actually made of that image bar, the fact that what it represents. So, uh, yeah, I, I would say that I, I, you can give a Bible to, to certain things like that. I, I think absolutely when it comes to artistic license, it's the way I prefer stories to be told is with, fiction really in composition because I, I i think you just generally that range of what you can reach is far more interesting than what you'll get from just a straight retelling because that's what documentaries are for that's what books and accounts are for that's what genuine being there experiences are for you know that's that's where that comes in when it comes to film i i do prefer to see these these narratives my issues were really more with um how the real life setting does unfortunately have context that nolan comments on but can't fully uh, back yeah, away like from so yeah so it, that's uh, those little things like that that you you have to sort of remind yourself but at the same time i mean this the actual story i have not i have no real issues with at all oh uh, yeah i can understand the reservations like i said when we were talking with adam i understand why the french would have been a little bit pissed uh or a lot pissed depending <laughs> on uh, on it is but i mean it's so it's it's one of the prime examples of how um 
history itself is 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 so one-sided depending on who's writing it. I think Nolan, at least in acknowledging the, the French, I understand that you have a problem with it. To me, I think had he not said anything about it, would have been worse, you know? And to me, anyway, like I said, I went to see Dunkirk twice. I really love this film. I think it's a very violent picture. Uh, not necessarily in the whole blood and guts and gore and all that, mm. but I mean in terms of just how, um, you know, what survival instinct looks like. And I mean, I remember reading an article just recently about a, a man out in Calgary here in Canada who who, who was crying, you know, he, he, he was interviewed after the, the showing of the film, he showed up dressed up and he's like, he says, this is exactly like I was reliving it again. He's, and so, I mean, that to me is a testament to what Christopher Nolan was able to, you know, reconstruct in terms of, uh, you know, what kind of of, of, a, of a survival piece that he's actually making and not a war picture. I mean, uh, people are talking about a war epic and this is not a war epic. This is a survival epic, if you will. Yeah, it's it's certainly not an epic, or you know, that's it doesn't. It's not a for our misery trip. It's 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 actually quite brief and and snappy for a terrible. That's why I kind of I, I made the allusion to it being something more like a horror film because it, yeah. it really is. It, it, even in the in the time scale for it, it's very much a tense punch to the to the ribs and then it kind of walks away and lets you think about it <laughs> well i mean that, that that's exactly what it is i nolan uh, um when i was watching the interview uh with him he cited clouseau's 1953 film the wages of fear and the tension in that movie is a source um you know uh, for, for for the general feeling he wanted for dunkirk and mm. i mean if you watch that movie with yves Montan, there are certain instances in the film especially the one like people who are listening to this that know what i'm talking about that the truck on the on the cliff you know you're not expecting it to fall you don't want it to fall you know so you have this weird fucking tension as they're scaling up that mountain and even there's a, a sequence in the film where they get stopped by guards at one point where you're like, fucking hell, is there a bomb? Is there no bomb? Are they going to find the bomb? <laughs> you know, and so there are these moments of tension where you don't want these guys to get caught because they're your protagonists. And I mean, uh, he also cited Hitchcock as, uh, as um, you know, the, Hitchcock- the Hitchcockian suspense in general where he wanted to have that and play with that uh, in-, in Dunkirk as well. That, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it does, yeah. And I mean, but I mean, he- he's doing it times a thousand, right? I mean, these these films like like Hitchcock's most most of his body of work was in the you know forties, fifties, and sixties, and then mm. after that you'll have uh, Clouseau as well with uh, Diabolique and and uh, Wages of Fear, uh, you know, in the nineteen fifties, where now to a mass audience of, and taking it you know and setting it in a war, that tension has to be so much more than than those films because I mean the the stakes right now our lives there's people lives that we're talking about and so yeah, they, you know that instinct to survive has to be put on full display and i think that he does a really good job at at um at doing that because you know throughout the entire fucking movie you know you're hard pressed to start breathing at one point you know he really <laughs> dictates on when you should actually be feeling relaxed or not i know that there are some that probably didn't feel that i did and i mean leslie as well my girlfriend she was sitting next to me the entire time and she was like jesus fucking christ and i mean she says now nah, my heartbeat i have to get my heart rate down i was even talking to <laughs> david hart and i'd seen a tweet that he put out and um uh, he was saying that is it normal for me to still be shaking you know and i'm like yeah i mean that that's exactly what nolan wanted and mm. to that that's a very very successful uh, yeah that's a great trick testament. to pull Absolutely. So, I mean, my my take on the film, I started thinking about this uh, because I'm, look, I'll, I'll flat out, 
You can call me a Christopher Nolan fanboy if you want. I am an unabashed fan of Christopher fan of Christopher Nolan. Uh, ever since the beginning, uh, I remember seeing Memento and going like, who the fuck is this? How do you make a picture like this? This is fascinating. And I revisited and found following and I thought that was clever as well. And I even watched the short film Doodlebug, which I have here. And I think that's uh, a fun um, short film as well. Mm. And I mean, he's to me gotten progressively better to the point where even he, when I was watching the interview with him, he said it himself, there is... A film out there, the inevitable fuck up that's going to come. You know, he says, I'm, he says, <laughs> I've been lucky so far to just be pulling off the films that I want to pull off. But I mean, he's aware that there's going to be a film that's going to dip in quality at one point. A lot of people would consider that to be Interstellar. Um, no, I well, don't think so. A lot so. of other I, people would probably say Batman Rises or Dark Knight Rises, but. At yeah. the same time, we're, the, the dip we're talking about here clearly has to be a lot more substantial than these films. And, and in Interstellar's case, that's not a dip. That's a yeah. high. <laughs> I mean, and even I'm pretty sure that if he was to pull off a romantic comedy starring Catherine Heigl, he'd probably make it pretty good. <laughs> and so maybe that's what we're waiting for. What a blow to Catherine Heigl's career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like weird. You don't know. He could, he could make a... You can make a punch drunk love with Catherine Hagel, you know, you don't know. <laughs> no, no, exactly. But I'm just saying that maybe he's just going to take a day off and just like, you know what, Catherine, do what you want. <laughs> anyway, so sorry for bashing on Catherine Heigl. That's yeah, not the wow. point. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so yeah, I mean, Dunkirk uh, to me is a masterpiece. I think it's a wonderful film. And if this sounds like I'm reading, it's because I am. But, uh, <laughs> to me... Dunkirk signals the end of Nolan's triptych or trilogy on survival, Mm. where Inception was an internal struggle for survival as an individual and where Interstellar was an external struggle for survival as a species. Dunkirk, in my opinion, attempts to bridge that gap, addressing how there must be some sort of synchronicity between both planes in order for life to have any meaning or any value. And as a survival film, as opposed to a war film, Dunkirk leans into how important it is to work together, to go beyond yourself, to understand a common cause, and against all odds, manage to survive. Mm -hmm. Now, this might sound idealistic, but I believe that Dunkirk is about seeing the bigger picture, which is things working together can achieve much more than one individual can on their own. Now, what I want to base myself on is the shape of Dunkirk, uh, the narrative structures that intertwine and intersect at one key moment in the film. Essentially what Nolan does or has done with Inception and Interstellar and now with Dunkirk is what I'll call symphonic films. All the moving parts of the films resemble the mechanics of an orchestra and therefore his usage of time in the films becomes time signatures, beats that must be kept in order to achieve one specific moment of catharsis. Now in an interview, Nolan said that he wrote the script according to the shepherd scale or tone which is where a sound's pitch either rises or descends without people really noticing the actual sound increases or decreases, but rather feeling them instead. I'll put an example of that in the end credits. So stay and listen to the end of the show, um, uh, all the way to the end. Uh, but I mean, Nolan's used this before uh, for the sound of the bat pod and the dark night. That seems to just like increase in mm. speed. And also, as I mentioned before in the section with Adam, the sound of the Spitfire planes that really start low and then increase in intensity that like boils up to a, a, a screech. But anyway, so kind of like the plane sounds, Nolan's three narratives come together in full pitch at the end of the film, kind of like the pitch from three different Shepard tones. So with his survival trilogy which is very different from his earlier work, in my opinion, Nolan has placed himself in the conductor's chair and is saying, sure, a violin can sound great on its own, but once put alongside a slew of them, accompanied by a piano, trombone, some percussion, you can achieve amazing things. 
where we saw most of Nolan's early work centered around one individual dealing with some form of loss, guilt, or trauma, we see the shift in Inception where we have Nolan actually incorporating a team that works together to achieve a specific outcome in all of his subsequent films, and that includes The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, absolutely. Now to discuss how Dunkirk fits into Nolan's survival trilogy, I want to contextualize Inception and Interstellar, and this isn't complicated. Inception is a film that deals with the past because its main narrative is focused heavily on trauma and guilt. Cobb is obsessed with the idea that he's responsible for his wife's death. His focus is to try and convert his memories into dreams so that he can manipulate them and eventually escape the psychological limbo he's in. Mm. Interstellar, on the other hand, is a film that deals with the future, which is pretty much self-explanatory, because its main narrative is focused on the future of mankind dealing with a planet that's saying, that's enough of you, fuck you humans, it's time for you to die, bye-bye now. (laughs) And how, when people decide to work together, you could possibly save the species. Dunkirk is very much a film in the present, because the entire narrative occurs in media res. Once Tommy crosses those sandbags... That's where the entire film takes place. You know, so contrary to Inception and Interstellar, none of the actions in Dunkirk are, are flashbacks or flash forwards. The actions may start at different times, but that's only because the three methods of transportation cover distances differently. In the end, they all converge at one point that is all there present. Also, the fact that there's little to no characterization in in, in, uh, Dunkirk is an added bonus because the audience is subjected to Mm. much of what the soldiers are subjected to, which is to act in the present moment and to live that present moment. What I also liked about Dunkirk is how it works in threes, which opens a world of possibility for interpretation. And the film also uses the classic three-beat structure, which is establishment, reinforcement, and subversion. Yeah. For example... Nolan will establish, you know, the blocking of the French troops from going on English ships at the beginning of the film, where the guy says, Anglais Allemand, Anglais Allemand. And he'll reinforce it using Alex, the Harry Styles character, who turns on Gibson, the French man who dies in the sinking ship, but then subvert it with Commander Bolton at the end of the film, who says that he'll stay and help the French. Also, the soldiers on the beach we follow, led by Tommy, the first soldier the audience meets, have to overcome two shipwrecks before they're saved by Mr. Dawson's boat. The Absolutely. three intersecting timelines each have three characters the audience follows. They each have one significant death. The first uh, Spitfire plane to go down, you never hear from the pilot again. From the beach soldiers, Gibson and the French, uh, Gibson the French soldier dies. And uh, from our boat group, George dies while Mr. Dawson and his son Peter survive. Mm-hmm. Now, moving back to why I think that Dunkirk fits into a survival trilogy or triptych is how Inception, Interstellar, and Dunkirk use relative time ranging from relative time in the mind in Inception, relative time on land, sea, and air in Dunkirk, and relative time in space in Interstellar. Also, all three films incorporate some form of uh, limbo in their narrative. Now, limbo is a term that's taken from Dante's Inferno, where Dante is stuck at the entrance of hell where time stands still, and therefore he's essentially being held captive between the land of the living and the land of the dead. In Inception, Cobb has to free Saito, who is stuck in Limbo. In Interstellar, Cooper is in the Tesseract, where time is infinite. And in Dunkirk, Tommy is trapped on the beach and in the water, Mr. Dawson on the water, and Farrier in the air. Which brings me to a shot in the film, one shot in the film, that's really wonderful because it encapsulates Nolan's message in Dunkirk to a T. Ten minutes in, the shot is of uh, the Dunkirk beach in between two posts, so the mole. 
Nolan travels back, and as a result, the optical effect has these posts coming closer together. And that shot highlights both both uh, the, the close distance between Dorsey and Dunkirk, but also the bringing together of people around a common cause. And now what's even cooler is that the shadows of the posts in the sand create that shepherd tone pattern, that curve mm-hmm. pattern, just before we switch to the number two chapter, C slash one day. So now you have the screen, the entire cinema screen, separated into three sections highlighting the three narrative structures of the film, the three planes, the three individuals on Mr. Dawson's boat, the three soldiers that we that get washed back onto the beach, and then the three shadows in the sand of the posts that if you draw a little longer will eventually convert. converge. Mm-hmm. So with the clever use of visual language in one shot, Nolan shows you the entire structure of Dunkirk. So there you have it. A Nolan survival trilogy that deals with past, present, and future, you know, uh, communicating the message that once we're able to overcome our personal guilt, our traumatic experiences, i.e. inception, and learn from them to see that we can benefit uh, from each other by putting our differences aside and worked as a collective, uh, you know, work together, i.e. Dunkirk, we could be headed towards a better future, i.e. Interstellar. So for Dunkirk, I thought it was really great of Nolan to be able to create an entire narrative according to an auditory illusion and how, you know, survival is one of those things that where you have to keep climbing and climbing and climbing and it's just a race uh, to see if you're actually going to make it. Sure. And so that that was my take on 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 the film. I thought it was a really wonderful thing for him to actually try this together, to have this, this uh, to tie all these three films together. Uh, well, absolutely. I absolutely agree. In fact, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about actually touches on those those very same notions, just from a different angle. But I've got a quick query um, with regards to the, the triptych uh, yep. idea. Typically in a triptych, uh, the centerpiece is more prominent. It's got a, usually the other two on either wing make for smaller pictures that sort of piece together with the centerpiece, which kind of becomes this sort of more focal point. Yeah. If would you think that Dunkirk becomes the center? If if do you think it has more prominence than the other two as in regards to uh, framing the entire piece, or would you say that the centerpiece is one of the other films because it has more to do with the human condition that the ultimate goal is? What would you What would you think? Um, about that? That's a good question. I mean, I would I would keep them in, in chronological order of release. Sure. Right. You know, so you'll have Inception. Be- you know that that's going to be the root of where we can go. Uh, internally, then you'll have the interstellar, which is going to be the immensity of possibility of human endeavor. And then you'll have Dunkirk, which is going to be a study of both the journey within and the journey without, you know, the idea that if you basically take whatever's inside you and put it to good use, then you're going to be able to help uh, on a larger scale and lead to bigger things. So I would leave interstellar in the middle of that. You know, I was just saying past, present, future, because that's normally the way we do it. But at the same time, yeah, absolutely. Nolan is 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 always keen on playing with that timeline, so why not have past, future, and present uh, yeah. in, chrono- in in his weird chronology? Yeah, absolutely, and I think that makes a lot of sense as well. the 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 general ambitions are so much more clear and on show in Interstellar, and the, it feels like the the point where everything was stated out loud, and then the other two form a sort of a conditioning as to how to better understand that center point. So I I think that makes perfect sense. The uh and it's funny, right? So my hypothesis on Dunkirk focuses very much on some of the similar elements that you were talking about, although I didn't actually factor in. Uh, Inception at the time. I really did. Right, a, a, right, right. I look at two films, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll improvise something at the end. Uh, cause I, I think there's probably a lot that you could make of 
uh, Inception, particularly the past, future, present. I mean, that just makes sense. What I was looking at was simply past and future. In- Inception itself could make an interesting present, but maybe we can think about that once once I get through the the general some of these ideas. So, but the hypothesis is that Nolan ponders the nature of salvation in this film uh, and its religious connotations, whether like space and science in Interstellar. Perhaps the desperation of war has the key to which we can find peace with human nature. So that very much ties into what you're saying, the the right. idea that these these build to teach us morals or ideas that could better us as a, as a species. I at, at first, I seen this as a sort of perfect companion piece to Interstellar. Yeah, absolutely. But, the, but I, I, it's interesting to consider where Ince- uh, Inception falls in between that. But I'll, I'll, I'll go with the uh, initial hypothesis and then maybe we can expand on it. So first... I just wanted to take a look at war itself, just to get a grounding. And as basic as we can get, what does the glory that is of the modern age, Wikipedia, say are the causes for war? This is actually taken from three sources, none of which I could find. But it's a nice little summary, so I'll just take it straight from Wikipedia. (laughs) And it says, War usually results in significant deterioration of infrastructure and the ecosystem, a decrease in social spending, famine, large-scale immigration from the war zone, and often the mistreatment of prisoners of war or civilians. So I thought it was interesting, because let's briefly cast back to Interstellar. What prompts the expedition to leave the planet and explore other options for the sustenance of human life? And you can see there's a lot of connections there. The farming grows scarce, the uh, the communities fall through, the ones that the farming community, certainly, but more in general. There's a, there's a disconnect on how people communicate with each other, uh, perpetuated yep. by education, turning a blind eye to science. Uh, in in particular, Murph's teacher. They don't teach the moon landing. Was that it? Uh, that's you know. Yeah, that's the other thing. Historical on, on events. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, even Coop's low income. You can see that as the, the, the decrease in social spending, uh, inevitable famine uh, from the from the loss of corn. Uh, so there's a lot of you know elements here that sh- seem like war, but is actually a, an ecological disaster mm-hmm. in in interstellar has been reframed in this film as as straight up war just good old world war ii how world war ii fell apart is is very much related to a lot of these things especially considering the french and and german relationship between them and and world war one as uh i think it's it's the rhine in 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 germany is what was owned by the the allies of the first world war and it was pleaded by the allies in after the the treaty of versailles that essentially became a focal point for why the germans in world war ii rallied around uh and against these these other countries that basically bullied them after their defeat in in uh, in world war one they it became more of a focal point to try and reclaim the land that was originally theirs and that was used by Hitler to sort of spin exactly why they needed to expand countries, basically taking back what was rightfully theirs. Um, So you see that kind of similar threads, although maybe not specifically spoken in Dunkirk, is exactly where World War II comes from. So you see where Nolan casts his eye back. And uh, yeah, and I think what's interesting about Interstellar, we see the the gain here. The reaction is for Cooper to find new life in space inevitably leading to an exploration on the universality of love and how, in turn, with unforeseen and perhaps spiritualistic exploration of as-yet-undefined science, humanity manages to save itself from destruction on Earth through the fourth-dimension magic 
As of yet, oh no, no, I love that. I am not. I'm not even remotely decrying that. I was, I was talking to Leslie. Sorry to interrupt. I was talking to Leslie just the other day, and I was like, I mean, I don't know if we're gonna ever reach a point where love is quantifiable, but I would like to get that because there is one thing that's true: is like even if a person's dead or or a person's absent, you know, you still have those feelings. Those things do travel. So there has to be some sort of logic somewhere. Whereas you can quantify, you know, time. You can quantify gravity. These are all notions that we can't necessarily see you know we can mm-hmm. see like you know the time passing because of the sun and whatnot but at the same time it is still a man-made concept whereas love is not necessarily one of those concepts it's something you feel and that has mm-hmm. to do something somewhere if that travels through time space and and whatnot through gravity if you will sure. uh, then there has to be some sort of fucking answer for it yeah i mean if that's yeah if if you wanted to take the utilitarian view on each piece that makes up humanity and that's what i think nolan explores there then the the, one of the potential and very optimistic outlooks on the use of love is something that travels through all manner of physicality and i think that's a, a wonderfully optimistic idea maybe naive maybe to consider it as quote unquote science but we that's the kind of thing we don't really know and at least it's not being straight up attributed to faith like we have gotten into the habit of doing as a society if we don't understand it it's faith it can't be explained and yeah. I, I like the I, the potential that all things can be explained even no matter how meaningless interstellar tries to frame a potential understanding deeper understanding of what love means and I, I i i totally am on board with that the uh and i think that's it's it's yes maybe painfully optimistic but at the same time yeah I, I, it's, it's still it's unique it's it's absolutely but, uh, interesting and 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 speaks to something that yeah you would, and, we would potentially hope is the case you know <laughs> out of out of the slew of films that have come out you know like uh, interstellar when it came out in in 2014 it set me off watching mm-hmm. films for nine months i couldn't watch anything else because i couldn't find out why <laughs> other people what, what was other people's excuses and it's pretty much the same for dunkirk i'll be honest if you sure. have the potential to make big budget films like this with grand ideas why aren't you doing it mm-hmm. why are we getting yeah. five transformers movies you know that this is that is very I, true. I, I don't get it you know and that's it's we're not even talking about the same kind of budget either there's oh, no yeah, reason <laughs> for, for Transformers to cost $217 million when Dunkirk costs 150 You know, when you're it, – it, I'm like, fucking hell. That's why when I sat down to watch Interstellar, a lot of people are like, oh, you're criticizing it. You know, oh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was too optimistic or it was too this. And it's like, really? I haven't seen anything like this film ever before. And I'll be honest, I haven't seen – I haven't seen anything like Dunkirk before either. You know, so I'll defend these movies to the grave because <laughs> yeah. at least this guy is making movies that, and I, like we were talking with Adam, he's basically telling people, what do you think? And it's your job to start thinking about these things on a grander Absolutely. scale than, well, I don't see myself in that movie, so fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very true. I think maybe with the reception of Dunkirk being an experiential film, yeah. it it seems that it closes the door on interpretation because it's supposed to be just whatever's in the moment. But there's very much a director's eye oh, and a director's yeah, script yeah, in yeah. this film. So I, I, you know, you got to be wary of these kind of things. You, you can't just accept what you're being told and say that's it. You know, you really have to read into the intentions behind these kind of things. And I think Dunkirk's a great place if you're only joining Atlantic SC 
for the first time, it's a solid place to start. <laughs> because uh, as as we continue here, so it, we can look at Christopher Nolan. He's now looked forward with Interstellar. Dunkirk has the man looking backward at the same causes and attempting to root out something in our sordid history that could potentially hold a key to our salvation. And right. in that term, we find two threads. The human salvation and spiritual salvation. Just like Interstellar, except spiritual in this case becomes something more grand in the vein of science. Spiritual in the past becomes a, a look at religion. And uh, and I think one of the, the tip-offs to that is in the opening title, the use of the word deliverance. It's very much a synonym for salvation in Christianity. I'll, I'll look at this, the human suffering first, because there's a lot of great moments on show in Dunkirk that we kind of have to look at as we explore war. And casting his eye back, Nolan zones in on the evacuation of Dunkirk, and it makes a lot of sense. There's a moment of undeniable hardship, true human horror, but a moment that, as Nolan sees it, seems to almost embody a higher status. In an interview with IndieWire, Nolan actually discusses how the British see Dunkirk, and he says... Dunkirk is something that you grow up with as a British person. The telling of the story that you get is simplistic and mythical in a way, almost like a fairy tale. The interesting thing to me about doing this project is that the more I found out about it, the more extraordinary it actually seemed. So already he's he's seeing past the just the physical action to something that speaks grander about the human experience, and this is something I think Nolan attempts to bring out of the events in his retelling, something hidden within the human and the physical trial that speaks more universally to the human condition. And while we do get the occasional thread of antagonism from Harry Styles' character or Cillian, Killian Murphy's character, as well as the ever-present threat of the Axis powers and bombers, these are introduced more to impress upon the audience the genuine feats of heroism and survival being displayed by those in the war. Whether it's Kenneth Branagh's intention to save the French, it's Tom Hardy's sacrifice to protect the beaches... It's uh, Mark Rylance's aiding of those lost at sea, his son's insistence that they save who they can, as well as pity on the soldier who unknowingly kills George, and importantly, Finn Whitehead's protection of the French soldier and inevitable escape from Dunkirk. Even if he fails, he does at, at one point try to stop the incoming you know, death of this one person who just wants to get home just like him. All these characters are met with swells of triumphant strings and horns and serve to highlight the genuine bravery and endurance of the human spirit against great adversity. The ultimate goal to each is salvation, whether for others or for themselves. And that's where we kind of look into salvation as a spiritual subthread. Here, it works its way into the film through Finn Whitehead's Tommy. Right. And what I feel here is, is an exploration of the Christian rites of baptism and absolution. Which, in my example, just because of more exposure, I'm going to be talking specifically about Catholic take on the rites. Though, I, you know, I'm sure you could make an argument for any number of the denominations. And I'm only picking Christianity. I'm sure this also is more applicable across more broader religions. But I would imagine this is the one Christopher Nolan is picking since, you know, he's British. And that's the sort of main, at the time of his growing up, that would have been the main religion that was going around. So... The film opens with Tommy in the middle of the war zone being gunned down by off-screen Nazis. The leaflets, as they did in real life, say, we surround you. Although in real life they did say a lot more stuff. But they also said, we surround you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If we look at this moment as the conception of the character, since it's his first moment in the film, and as we follow his dead-eyed acceptance behind the barracks as his introduction to society and his aid in burying the body as an image of inherent good... 
we can see this as the development of a child born into the world with original sin, and the Christian solution to which is water. So baptism comes into play, perhaps even chrismation, if you want to analyze the oil, which surfaces later on, but let's, we'll, we'll focus on baptism. Baptism alone with the first ship doesn't guarantee salvation. He, he gets submerged in water, but it's not enough guarantee salvation. But as is the case with Catholicism, and indeed most religions, there needs to be a willingness on the part of the person to reach the sort of afterlife, the end goal of whatever your religion believes. Hmm. Uh, we see a good action from Tommy in that he defends the French boy trying to escape as well, but ultimately that doesn't save him immediately either. He just ends up back in the water, just like where he was baptized. More importantly, however, I think from this scene we can gain one thing about him, and it's his admission. He won't volunteer to leave the ship to save the others himself, as he intends to go home. So while he is trying to do a good deed, ultimately he does admit that he's not willing to sacrifice himself to do it. He's just willing to stand up for it. And here is an acknowledgement of his flaws as a human being. But this is actually another sacrament, one required for salvation, the sacrament of reconciliation, which frees him from the sins created after baptism. And soon after, as the ship arrives to take him home, sort of at the gates, if you will, of the dock, the welcoming blind man at the gates lowers his hands across his face as if to absolve him of sin. Yeah, you're right. I like that. So, more importantly, it's it's more interesting to think about what Nolan's latest exploration of humanity's redemption means. You know, where does that take us? Where does that leave interpretation? And so I don't think Nolan himself is here attempting to create a religious movie, or even affirm the existence of a god. Nope. Uh, I'm pretty sure Interstellar kind of firmly passed that book, so I mean, I don't think he's he's going to double down on, you know, religion really existing. Or <laughs> He's making his born-again film, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, but by evoking religious imagery with acts of human valor, we see Nolan attempting to derive perhaps something at the core of human history, that could perhaps save us as we go forward, very much a continuation of the ideas in Interstellar. The fact that we never see the enemy soldier faces is to cement the notion that the real enemy is the negative sides of human nature, and that we need to explore further the positive sides in order to devise a way forward. If we take the notions learned from Interstellar and Dunkirk, we now have a series of explored and surviving traits that could hold the key. Forgiveness, reconciliation, love, bravery, courage, commitment, empathy integrity, cooperation, as you said, Jason, that's another one. These might not perhaps be new traits or ideas, but they are consistent universals, in Nolan's eyes, that have salvaged our past and potentially our future selves. And we may not be at the end of Nolan's attempted ideology, but it stands the reason he means to expose the universal good in humanity in the hopes of finding salvation for the species. Which would be good because looking at Dunkirk, we're a fucking nightmare. Yeah, I I agree, and I mean just a just a quick uh, he hints at that that concept that you're bringing forth at the end of Dark Knight. You know when he when uh, Batman is confronting Joker and says, "No one, not everyone, you're alone. Not everyone is as evil as you." They showed you today just what kind of hope uh, they can have. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's also that's hinted at in Inception. You know, the idea that he's going to be able to move forward. You know, absolving himself Absolutely. of the guilt and trauma, and it's even more present in the fact that. Uh, in Batman, you know, The Dark Knight Returns, Batman isn't even in the fucking picture. It more has to do with Bruce Wayne's humanity, you know, the, what he can actually achieve and what he it means to the people. 
uh, in the end yeah, as well, you know, people banding together. So you can see that Nolan has, has been harping on these themes for quite some time. Yeah, as you were saying as well, that The Dark Knight Rises, it, it focuses more on the people and, and the society of, in the film and, and how they're coping and what Batman means far more openly to them than them to Batman. Right. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. that Obviously, the shift is there, that he wants to put the perspective on what it means to the people rather than what it means to the hero who mm-hmm. leads the people. And uh, I think that's great. And it, obviously, that being the shifting point between his sort of work between Inception, the crossover to Interstellar, there's this great idea that maybe this renewed focus occurred there somewhere in that timeline where he yeah. started to double down on this idea of how does one save humanity? Because we're shit. And I'm sure yeah. working on the on the Dark Knight, probably, you know, that would be one of those, well, we really need to fix something <laughs> kind of moments. Uh, I would I would say, interestingly, I as I was saying, I hadn't pictured Inception in the film. I would like to posit the idea that, in my interpretation, it focuses more on a perpetual present, certainly as far as it relates to the personal more than the general, like the other ones, because it focuses more on Cobb's experience and and very much the sort of inner turmoils that he has to go through as a character, where the other one, Interstellar, it's far more a communal ideal. It's far more about a, a shared community and a family. And uh, Dunkirk is obviously about this greater uh, sense of, of nation and people. Uh, you know, there's 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 certainly more elements at play than just the the few protagonists who are many even in the film can possibly offer as single characters in single narratives. Inception, I would like to posit maybe as this idea of the the personal limbo that we exist in at the moment being Cobb's limbo, uh, this this inner turmoil where we are in we are constantly searching for a way out. The idea, and I would say it's maybe an insight into the optimism that he would later embody with the latter two films, is that that final ending with the the spinning top being, it's Mm -hmm. not important how we get there or what it means, it's just a matter of us getting there. I think that's interesting because it also, it deals very much about his past, but it also ends looking to his future and how the future doesn't have to matter how we get there, but it's good uh, to that person. If we consider Cobb as this sort of like neutral grain of humanity and what it means to the every person who has to get on board with these ideas, really, you could look at the spinning top as something that says we have to leave all our personal affects behind and walk into that unknown. Maybe our children are there. Maybe they're not. It doesn't really matter. It just matters that what's holding us down, the perpetual present of our guilt that you were saying, needs to be left on the table. And we don't even need to know whether it's, you know, whether we're in limbo or not anymore. It just matters that we take that risk, that jump forward. I think you could really work something out of that. Oh, I 100% agree. I mean, you're absolutely right. The only reason why I figured it in is because it's the first film on which he actually establishes that teamwork is going to be inevitable in order to move away from one's own past. You know, yes, Cobb absolutely. can't do this on his own. He needs... Uh, all the characters that are surrounding him, you know, uh, Ellen Page, and I don't remember their fucking names. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody does that. Tom Hardy and yeah, Joseph I mean, but Gordon just at the team in Inception, you know, the architect, the the potions man, and you know, all that stuff. They're going to need that individual, th- those individual mm-hmm. um, characteristics, in order to build one proper thing, which is going to be uh, yeah, that, yeah, that, that, that one memory, workable society. Exactly. It's based and on so, and the idea, even though you're saying the, the architect could be, you know, these, these general roles that are needed to build a, a future, you know. 
Oh yeah, yeah. A, an interrogator or a negotiator. We need a somebody who solidifies the world, and we need somebody of action. Uh, I, I can't remember if it's Tom Hardy's character is is more the uh, the guy who who kind of ke- keeps everything at bay. Eames, yeah, would, I don't remember exactly what he does. Yeah, he, by, he, to me, he's the shapeshifter in there. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's the you know maybe potentially the the character of, of which society relies on to sort of ward everything at bay while it tries to mend itself. They're you know almost a sacrificial character. Yeah, uh, it, there's plenty of threads there. I mean, that you could probably make something out of it. Uh, yeah. Not saying that this is the only way. And that's probably the more interesting thing. This is not the way that we both stumbled on it two different readings for some similar outcomes mm. means that these films are wide open you know absolutely well, see that's the fun thing i mean you opened up that door uh with with regards to saying that you know there are, are uh fairy tale elements you know um, mm-hmm. yeah exactly <laughs> and i mean look i mean we, we could actually uh bring in the fairy tales like i was talking about the, the use of the number three you know the idea of completion you have that in scripture you have that in yes. fairy tales you know the grant the genie grants three wishes uh the three little pigs you, you know you, you have all these elements that are going to come together in threes uh as well and you could also bring in uh mythology you know with mr dawson being uh karen you know that that boatman that ferries between you know uh, the living and the dead yeah Um, absolutely so you can really bring it in and that's why i think that nolan is trying to do with dunkirk you know and and like as i said bridging that gap between those two films inception and interstellar is basically showing that we have all the answers. It's just that we haven't figured out how to put them together yet. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that this continual sort of search for the universals in past future, and I'm more interested to see what where we go next if we've went interior with Interstellar. I would love to see in a, a, this this sort of rule breaking fourth one that gets a little weirder about these insubstantial parts of humanity that we might not selectively think of when we're we're trying to frame things narratively i feel there's always more room if you look at the postmodern understanding of the world there are lots of inconsistent bits and pieces that still make up for a good world that aren't so you know simple as a term we can just go love you know we can't just say love and it it means a million things in one it also means nothing you know so there's there's a lot of inconsistencies there and trying to think of, I think that Nolan uses a lot of modernist thinking to try and, and, and create a concrete way forward. Mm-hmm. But potentially a way to to further that exploration is to delve into maybe postmodern thinking and try to think of the in-betweens, the, the, the natural hidden messages lying underneath the big words that we have developed so far. And I mean... That's just hopeful wishing. Maybe this is the end. Maybe this is the the concise trilogy of exploration of humanity and we're just supposed to dig from here. But, I mean, things probably won't be fixed in the next five, ten years. So I would say keep going at it until we get some answers. (laughs) And then there's a guy to do it who hits the the big-scale blockbuster tick box. I think Nolan's the guy to, to go for it. Yeah, I mean, but that's the funny thing right now is you put your finger on it. Where do we go from here? in terms of Nolan's career. He's explored inside the human mind. He's explored the vastness of of space, you know, outside humanity. And now he's mm-hmm. dealt with reality. In Dunkirk, when you're like, well, fuck. Now what does he do? Does he start over again? Does he yeah. does he press his own reset button? The same way we were talking about in the Shepherd scale, like, you know, the idea of the audio illusion where he has to just start up again and build up to a new fever pitch. You know, where where does he go from here? I mean, it's going to be a very difficult thing 
to 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 plan. I mean, no one would have thought that he was going to go from Batman to 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 Interstellar. I mean, I think the like the next logical step is possibly going to be Bond, and so we'll we'll have to. He's going to need a break. He's going to need a break from from what he's been doing right now in order to recenter and figure out what the hell it is uh he wants to pull off next but i mean that's just me uh he he fooled everyone by by bringing out the prestige you know uh where mm. you're like well, how, why is he making a movie about magicians and then it turns out you're like fucking hell that was awesome but yeah very much we'll see what kind of magic trick he decides to pull next so yeah i mean i recommend dunkirk uh i would have loved to continue talking about it but like i said i mean we have to cut down these two-hour shows yeah, are gonna we, have we to can, really yeah. It's getting a we little can't go on. We could we could go for four hours, but I mean, uh, nobody's yeah. gonna listen to that. <laughs> but that's it. And I mean, right now, the the fun thing is, is that with Dunkirk uh, playing the way it's playing, I I I feel like going back again. There's so much more in there that I I could get, and I love the fact that you know th- this is based on a true story, based on true events, based on true events. These are not true events. These are based on true events. And Absolutely. I mean, the fact that Nolan has able was able to kind of. Um, transform this story into a narrative that can be interpreted that can be juxtaposed to the larger themes that you know uh, just people that haven't been to war can actually not necessarily project themselves into but can get something from it as a as a life lesson yeah, i think absolutely. is kind of something that that is very commendable on his part because he could have gone the the regular route and told a story uh, of how this happened and that happened and we had these signature heroes here and there but I mean the lack of characterization in this film actually helps the film in my opinion because it really really cements uh, these characters as living in this moment we mm-hmm. are privy to what they're going through and it makes it a little bit more real in my opinion even yeah, though that this could be a, 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 um, I won't say a fiction but a, an interpretation of what reality could have been at that moment in time so I don't know. I mean, to me, Christopher Nolan has hit it out of the park again with Dunkirk. I'm looking forward to seeing it again. So yeah, I recommend it. I see it more than once. You're going to pick up on other things. Does the tension <laughs> die down the second time? Uh, no, I found myself I getting emotional. Not. Yeah, I got my. I was emotional uh, in the first time I saw it for the bits that Nolan wants me to be emotional for. Sure, mm. you know the idea, of, uh, like you know, following these soldiers around and, and feeling like just like real empathy towards them i wanted them to survive so much you know but then in the second viewing i was i was actually uh, thinking about the the bolton character who's just in over his fucking head absolutely trying to figure out what the hell to make of all this people coming in with him for questions and you know uh, i felt myself being a little bit more invested in the the smaller stories at hand in in dunkirk as opposed to the overall narratives in the first time uh, i saw it so yeah, I can't recommend this enough. How about you, sir? Yeah, I mean, I as I was saying, I don't I don't have to absolutely 100% be on board with a representation of reality to not appreciate the genuine work and effort that went into telling a very specific story. Here, if you're well informed enough to know that there are bits missing, Dunkirk is an absolute must. If you don't know that much about Dunkirk, I would say it's important to maybe just be made aware of what is missing from the film. And it's definitely not incorrect to analyze what Christopher Nolan might be trying to say about what happened in history, but I don't think it's nearly as important as what he's trying to say about what's ahead for us. Uh, And I think how that works and how that relates to his previous films to compound on this idea of of a good future for humanity 
he's an optimist deep down, and I think it's really yeah, baked in it. baked into the stories themselves. And that, to me, that's always going to say I, I'm never going to shy away from someone who treats philosophy seriously. That's that's important. That's always important. And I think that it's great to see someone use a medium like film to try and deliver that to the masses. You know, bring something that. You're not going to maybe read or spend the time reading on in a book. They're going to set these ideas in your head of what good and bad might be if such things exist. And if they do, these these are good ways to try and... Uh, these, these are good attempts to try and summarize that. So I think that absolutely you should see Dunkirk. You should probably also see Interstellar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Inception. And if Inception. You want to go along with my which is which is a good. Yeah, I mean, I think Inception does fall pretty neatly in that little timeline as well on my side of things. So I think that all three yeah. of those make an important uh, message that you can definitely read into. I think Interstellar still sings highest to me, maybe because it's the most blatantly optimistic, and therefore, as you were saying, the centerpiece of the triptych because it's the most fast. Uh, yeah, I. I 100% agree. Even if it is the future, the chronology of it, the chronology of it is less important than the material that you're being that's being gained from within. And I mean, if you're looking at Nolan's weird self chronology, I mean, it still works anyway. But I, I, I definitely think there's something very important from these films, and uh, it's it's great, as I was saying at the very start, to be there and to say, oh yeah, in 2017 we we sat down and we tore the fucking ass out of Dunkirk. You know, it was great. <laughs> yeah, and that, there's so much more to say. I Absolutely. feel I feel bad because I, I want to go on. I want to go on. I, I just uh, I can't right now. I, yeah. it, it would be it would be taxing to you guys out there Absolutely. Uh, listening to the show. It would be terrible. So uh, maybe we'll <laughs> we'll have a second episode on Dunkirk eventually. We're like, okay, here we are a year later after our crazy theories on the survival trilogy and all that shit you know throw that all in the garbage now we're, we're starting from scratch yeah yeah that was really a doomsday message all along we were just trying to be optimistic about it <laughs> all right anyhow so shall we close this out sir absolutely cool so thank you very much everyone who tuned in special thanks goes out to adam woodward of little white lies who came on the show gave us his time and all that so please go give adam a follow at Absolutely. aw lies on twitter also go follow little white lies uh, david jenkins the editor-in-chief and james richardson the guy that's going to be the host of the podcast truth and movies a little white lies podcast on itunes give them a subscribe because you're going to enjoy it they are much shorter than we are but it doesn't <laughs> matter we want you guys to come back anyway also a um a thanks to everybody who took part on twitter and uh instagram yeah. uh, <laughs> there was one guy on instagram i don't have his name in front of me well let me quickly look it up and um, so we had these two other comments on instagram we didn't get to mention uh gabe creates said great post thanks gabe <laughs> that was great <laughs> <laughs> really, really had really read it. Uh, probably yeah. a bot. Doesn't really matter. Uh, also, Reddy Schmetti, um, who is Jessica, who we've we've mentioned a couple of times on the show, um, said, and I'll just read out her comment: "Stunning film. I felt both a distance and an intimacy with the characters and events. I felt like I was on the beach, on the boat, in the water, and in the cockpit, but as a complete observer, like I was there to witness this." I felt the heart-pounding dread and felt sympathy, but my role was larger than one character's arc. Maybe this is what people are talking about when it comes to feeling cold. I wouldn't want to describe it this way. I love this aspect of the film. So there you go. That's actually the, the best summary we had. Us three with, uh, with Adam trying to detail exactly the sort of middle ground that that coldness might be trying to describe. I think uh, Jessica really summarized it really well there. Uh, Absolutely. Um, 
I'm going to also give a shout out again to our, our Twitter compatriots. Uh, so there was at Film Seekers, that was Neil Ramji, Darren Moore at Kafulu Bits, Luke Whittacase at Witty Stuff, Joshua Outred in at J Outred, JD Duran at Real JD Duran, and I also, uh, the first time watchers were somewhere in the mix there. And, uh, and of course, uh, our, our longtime friend and contributor, Carrie Lynn, was floating around retweeting and, and liking everything, just making sure that she was a part of it all. So it was great. <laughs> Very cool. So, but thank you, everybody, for getting in touch and uh, on such short notice giving your opinions on the film. That was really cool. Yeah, and thanks again, I mean, to David Hart. We, uh, we actually texted after the movie uh, the other day and we had a long discussion about Dunkirk. It was really, really fun. Great. I'm sad I couldn't make it to to his show like I said my daughters wanted to go to the pool so I took them to the pool uh, big shout out to Sheila obviously so uh, where can we find you Lee? Yeah so you can find me Lee Brady at Big Pick Reviews on Twitter you can also look us up at bigpicturereviews.co.uk we're also on Facebook and uh, yeah you can, you can read my written review of Dunkirk at Big Picture Reviews you can also read uh, Lawrence's review he also chipped in he got he got to actually see it as a preview from uh, Queen's Film Theatre so that was pretty cool and uh, we also got Mark Putley, who he's he's joined the team, and his review's great. So absolutely, give those. Uh, if you go on to bigpicturereviews.co.uk, you'll be able to read them all and get a, a smorgasbord of interlocking experiences and reactions. Jason, awesomeness. My name is Jason Michael. You can find me at, at Atlantic SC on Twitter. Be sure to give our Instagram uh, a follow. It's Atlantic SC Podcast on Instagram. And also be sure to go like our Facebook page, Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast on Facebook. I said that twice. Anyway, that's just how long the show's been so far. <laughs> uh, so I want to thank everyone for uh, chipping in, like I said before. And, uh, we're going to be doing most likely a little bit of coverage on the Fantasia Film Festival, which I was lucky enough to go to. Uh, got, you know, and I'll, I'll save all the little bits and pieces for when we decide to do that. And I guess that's it for us this week. Thank you very much for tuning in. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.